0: When I record podcasts, I like to stay hydrated. Who knew talking could be so hard? My favorite drink to have to hand is Lifeline's Hydro OG. It's a tried and tested product for me. It helped me and my team complete a 24-hour podcast, giving us the edge that we needed to get over the finish line. So whether you're at the gym, on a bike ride, or just trying to get over that night before, Lifeline's Hydro OG has got your back. Each serving is stocked with all the healthy ingredients and vitamins you could ask for. There are a great range of flavors, and with each serving at only 18 calories, you really can't go wrong. Here at the Shrewsbury Biscuit podcast, we like to support local, independent companies and brands. And Lifelines is a product that I am proud to endorse. Go to lifelines.com. Now that's L Y F E L I N. EZ.com to find out more. Now, without further ado, here is today's episode. Hi guys, welcome to the Shoes with Biscuit podcast. i got to remember people can't see this. Like, we can see each other, but we're doing this audio. But uh, welcome yeah. to the show. I'm here with Verity. All right, mate?
1: Hello. Hi. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. Good. Uh, it's been a... Good. I, was, I was thinking about... I was thinking about um, it's only been, what, a month? A month since you come on the biscuit, and I was thinking about how much we've done together already.
1: Loads, quite a lot. It's been insane, isn't it? It's been really, really like it. Yeah.
0: Um, so just just to recap, um, we did Cord's crush cancer. Yeah. As an event, which was uh how do you feel about that? Did you enjoy it?
1: I absolutely loved it. I love I love stuff like that. Everyone getting together. I didn't drink, but other people were drinking, having a dance, raising money, good raffle. I thought it was brilliant, yeah. real, real nice bit of live music, right up yeah, the street.
0: Re- that was. I really enjoyed it. I, I didn't. So I had, I had a few drinks, but I didn't want to get. I didn't want to get drunk because, mm. like, I feel like uh, when I'm in biscuit mode, <laughs> I've got to be. I've got to be. Got to behave. Do you know what I
1: mean? <laughs> yeah, you can't be too much of a rascal.
0: I've done it before I went to October 1st uh I gotta say 2019 I think it was the one before pandemic and um I yeah I got, I got really wasted <laughs> I was so drunk and um <laughs> um we were interviewing people and they were drunk as well and I was getting as as the people that were on that we were interviewing and there was so much audio we got that that weekend that I couldn't use
1: <laughs> I was gonna say I bet it was all just full of drunken sweary nonsense wasn't
0: it mm, yeah pretty much uh, it's one thing i learned from from my from days doing you suck and stuff i remember um <laughs> one of the first interviews we did when we launched you suck was with adam pennell you know i thought this great guy who cooks with barbecue and dirty greasy amazing food speaking to my american co-host where they do a barbecue for like real and stuff like in america i thought it'd be really cool i Got absolutely obliterated, and I had to release two different versions of that podcast. One <laughs> well, family goodness.
1: friendly one. <laughs> well,
0: in more case of like, there's one where I like hit, you can tell where I hit a wall, and, it's <laughs> <really hilarious. laughs> right. and I had to like cut all the bits to make it like sort of coherent. And then everyone was like, all the, all the listeners were like, release the drunk one, release the drunk one. So I had to release the <laughs> drunk one. So from that moment on, I was kind of like, now nah, when I'm on when I'm on like pod duty, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Much. But um, that, that night was fantastic. i will just finished put I'm finishing putting the blog together now, Um, and some of the some of the uh, the music and the the entertainment and then the uh, the auction, uh, it all worked out really really well, which is kind of nice, really. Um, oh, wicked! Uh, and then last night, uh, me and Verity, which uh, is a podcast you can hear in a couple of weeks, we spoke to. Uh, to, to Chasing Mallory, uh great band, uh, Shrewsbury based. There's a picture that I did not do a good job with photography last night, as you can tell. <laughs> but uh great guys, great band. Uh you enjoyed chatting to those guys?
1: I loved it. They had such a nice vibe. They I like um like they clearly have like all got such a strong bond with each other, and there was a lot of banter, but you could feel the affection they had for one another. I thought it was just real nice, real nice. Hmm. And they're and then, quite, obviously quite driven in what they do as well.
0: It's, it's it's nice to see some of the people that are like both driven and relaxed at the same time. they kind of like, yeah, yeah we want all these goals, yeah. but yeah, take a time doing it and enjoy ourselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I think, well, maybe, maybe, yeah, that's nice.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm really enjoying this. I think I, this has been the busiest start to the year I think we've had. I mean, usually we do the Darwin Festival, not doing that this year because there is genuinely just so much in Shrewsbury going on. Like we have now, we've technically got, I've got what I'm holding on to now, enough content to take us through till March. Like, That's literally. pretty wicked. Well, I'm not going to do that, guys. I'm going to I'm going to release it as and as and when we sort of we release things. So, um, it's really good. Uh, we're working with a few people at the moment as well to bring out some of stuff. I was chatting to Triple J, who's a local rapper. Uh, we're going to meet up with him. I'm going to meet up with him next week. I don't know if you're available. Um, we'll we'll ch- talk about schedules. But he's going to come on mine and do some, do some freestyles and some rapping and stuff. He's asked cool. me to voice over a music video of his, which is quite cool. Wow. Yeah, he he wants me That's to do. Cool a bit of a nature thing as we see a rapper in his. It's <laughs> also, a, I did on my story today. I was messing about. He was like, yo, yo, can we do you for a thing? And I was like, yeah, of course.
1: You was know, <laughs> so. wicked. Good
0: yeah. for you. Um, And then tomorrow night, we're doing yeah. Becky Lisney's uh, event, yeah. which we'll get interviews from. I don't know if, I don't know what fo- photography we're going to be able to get from there because there's going to be uh, a lot of uh, Becky's art photography on the wall. And I think some of it's a bit scantily, a bit too scantily clad for maybe for the biscuit audience, but uh, it's all art.
1: Yeah. So, so no, yeah, some of it, um, I was having a look on her Instagram. It's not all full exposure, is it? But I guess she wouldn't put that on Instagram, would she?
0: I guess you can say it's like a a photograph, a, a photographic version of of some of the oil paintings you get, like of beautiful ladies showing off yeah. their what they've got, and in in a beautiful way. It's not it's not like your OnlyFans stuff that you'd see, like yeah. it's genuine art. So um, yeah, uh, I think this is going to go out um, after the fact. Um, but definitely follow uh, Lilith um, Women Body Empowerment Photography. Um, we've got so much to look forward to, and, and I want to say thank you, Verity, for for being such a huge support. You've been amazing, honestly. You've made such a good start. I, like I can't thank you enough.
1: Oh, stop it! I've had such a fun time. Thanks for thanks for bringing me on board and letting me have a go at it. It's, it's been I, I've loved it. It's
0: really funny coming coming away from Alex McCarthy's uh, uh, thing we did that was last week was that last week Jeez, it's really hard to keep a track I've, of what's I've going no on.
1: idea I don't even know where we are today <laughs>
0: um Verity was like I don't know what do you want me to what's going on I was like there is a genuine plan in place you know I'm kind of weaning Verity in doing a bit more and more and more every time and I was like, the goal is for you to plan organize record and release your own podcast and she was like oh <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah let's go back to taking it slowly <laughs>
0: That's the that's the goal, though. I think you'd be good at it. Find yeah. someone to speak to. We've got Streamyard. Yeah. Do it virtually, literally anyone you can speak to in the world. Got equipment. Yeah. You can go and get an interview. Okay, done.
1: <laughs> okay, I'll do it.
0: Yeah, you'd be good. You'd be really, really good. Honestly. Well, anyway, this episode uh, that we were about to show you guys um, is a difficult one for a lot. I think maybe to to listen to this is uh, me speaking to Simon Bell. Um. And uh, uh, it's about his book, uh, Simon Bell. For those who don't know, was um, our first ever guest for the Shoes of Biscuit. He was on episode number one, one of our most listened to episodes, because he's a wonderful guy. Um, he does great things, especially when it comes to Holocaust survivors and um, and and you know communities across Europe. Um, his book, I read it from cover to cover and it kind of affected me on a molecular level because it takes like some of the ideals of like that were happening in world war 2 some of the, the the rhetorics and the behaviors and the languages that were used and it takes a sneak at what's going you know sort of pick of what's going on today and there's a lot of similarities and it kind of really scared me actually um yeah yeah a lot going I think
1: on. I think that's a sort of book that although it's not I I think I'd struggle reading it
0: yeah well, I thought I was because I I, I I asked him. I said, "Is it is it a thing that happens to like guys when they get to like I don't know late thirties, forties, where they kind of suddenly get obsessed with World War II? Because that's what's happened with me. Mm-hmm. I watch documentaries and movies. I read stuff. Like I don't know what it is. I feel like I feel like I'm compelled to learn more and more and more. And i I've, <laughs> I've watched like so many documentaries and stuff that are harrowing." And I was thinking that this book was going to be just like that. And it, it kind of is in some places, some of the stuff that you, it describes, but it's not that bad. It's more about sort of like the the allied countries and how their behavior towards the, the Jewish community. And if there's more, they could have done. And if actually uh, some countries were at fault with uh, the way they behaved during during the war. So that's what that's about. Um, The book is very, very good. You can buy it from most bookstores. We'll order it for you. You can get it on Amazon. Um, It's called Remembering the Holocaust and the Effect on Societies Today, written by Simon Bell. Enjoy this episode. If you have any comments, if you want to add anything to it, please on the comment um, link, please drop a a comment in there um, or you can message us on Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at shrewsburybiscuitpodcast at gmail.com. So, yeah, Verity, thank you so much for everything you've been doing lately. Honestly, you've been a star. Thank you. uh,
1: My pleasure. we'll
0: We'll let you guys enjoy this episode. Enjoy. Hi guys, and welcome to the Shoes with Biscuit podcast. I'm Alex Whiteley. Um, Again, no Verity today. I've got nothing against Verity. Verity is my new co-host, by the way. Um, But this this interview was actually planned, like, before christmas i believe it was it was a long time in the making this podcast and um, today we're recording at the Flora lounge now i wanted to come to the Flora lounge simply because i'm very curious about the leather sofas they got upstairs in front of the, the pictures because i look at that scene i think i saw andy o'brien a uh, great shrewsbury musician great guy uh, performing here and i saw these couches and i thought that would be a perfect setting a, a, like if you could create a set for the shrewsbury biscuit That's what I would love. So I come up here, I was curious about it. So I wanted to record here. And it's a beautiful place. If you've not been to the Floral Lounge, pop in. It's very homely. Um, And today uh, we're speaking to um, Simon Bell. Now, fans of the Shoes with Biscuit will know that Simon Bell was the very first interview we did, episode one. I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. One because I'm really shaky on the audio. It's really it's crazy the journey I've made since uh, since I started recording episode one. But um, also you get a, a, a great introduction to, to Simon. We put a lot of effort into finding out about Simon the man. <laughs> Today we're talking about um, Simon's new book. But we will we'll, we'll we'll brief over it. How are you, Simon? Are you good?
2: I'm very well, good. Thanks for having me back on.
0: Yeah, it's nice to see you again. You know, I feel like this is this is um, the best part of the journey of what we do at the biscuit is we make good friends along the way and you've been a constant friend throughout the whole thing and a great support of the show so i really do appreciate you yeah so you're welcome um let's uh, let's uh, let's uh break it down in, in, a, in a gentle way so uh when it comes you are an author are you write about um uh, world war ii the holocaust genocide um when did you realize that this is what you wanted to do and why <laughs>
2: When did I realise that I wanted to? I don't know. I was, I was pondering uh, this last night. Um, on Twitter, I follow a, a man who refers to himself as Lakota Man. He's a Lakota Native American. And we uh, mutual follows and exchange messages. He posted an image of a book yesterday that um, I first read when I was 13 in, in 1974. Oh, this wow. book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And I would encourage anyone to read it. It stands the test of time. It looks at the genocide of Native Americans during the um, second half of the 19th century. It is an awful read. And for me, at that time, I was already interested in the subject matter. So you read this at 13? At 13. Yeah. Um, It put a completely different take on North American history as it was portrayed on television and in, in the films, where the Native Americans were the savage bad guys and the settlers were the good guys um, fighting this terrible danger. The reality was the settlers were the savages and they nearly eradicated a whole people in North America.
0: Uh, and when people think of America, and by the way, I've got lots of great friends in America, so this, uh, and, and yeah, there's going to be lots of talk of nations and countries of things they did yesteryear that aren't really I'm not really reflecting I'm, I'm not being personal I think mm. is the best way to put this but when you think of America you think uh, you know Hollywood and New York and, yeah. and the wise guys you know uh, you don't think of genocide but I think that's sort of changing now isn't it yes
2: yeah. <laughs> and, and going back to that book and, and certainly this book that we're talking about today it's about the selective nature of national memory uh, yeah. and we all nations are guilty of this we like to see ourselves in a good light uh, the British um, view empire as a wonderful era of of us um, civilising
0: people in other nations. You speak to people from other countries about the British and they have a completely different view, don't they?
2: Absolutely. And when we look at the war in Europe... And the Holocaust in particular, those nations that were occupied by the Nazis have a very selective um, take on their own history. They see themselves as noble resistors, people who fought, people who were oppressed. And they were. There were resistors, and they fought, and they were oppressed, and it was a very difficult time. But there are citizens in all of those countries who actually participated in the crimes of the Holocaust, not because they were forced to, but because they wanted to. Um, And that reality of history is something that should be owned we need to own the reality of the bad parts of our history yeah. as all nations that history needs to be told truthfully not selectively
0: um, I watched I don't know if you've seen it it was uh, John Linguishama uh, we like him he's Colombian and my wife's from Colombia but he did a, a special on Netflix and it was it was like a stand-up comedy but well, he was talking about uh, the the Christopher Columbus genocides of, of the Native Americans um, how they turned over turned up and, and purposefully um, you know inf- inf- inflected all these these uh, viruses and rape and pillaging murder and on a catastrophic yeah. scale um, and he somehow made it into a comedy special where he was actually telling people about these things in a nice calm way if, if you like and and um, I think that was groundbreaking. I think that was really, really clever how he did that because people were laughing at the jokes, but at the same time they were taking in the information that he was teaching them. It was quite, quite interesting.
2: That's a good way of getting the message across.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's weird how you can mix something as dark as that with humour. But um, so John Leguizamo, if you don't know him, he played Sid the Sloth in Ice Age. He, he's been in loads and loads and loads of movies. Um, he's a great guy. Um, now this, uh, this, this book, uh, Remembering the Holocaust and the Impact on Societies Today, I am so glad you wrote this book. I am so, so, so glad you wrote this book because me and you have been having a, a continuing conversation about how there's certain things happening today that sort of mirror things and how they were back then. And um, it's quite scary actually.
2: It's, it's one of the interesting things about history and one of the sad things about history is that you can see the patterns being repeated. You can see the attitudes towards our fellow human beings, the dehumanizing language that some politicians will use and others, influencers, um, elements of the media, uh, where they don't see people as human beings. They use language that dismisses them, and that dehumanizing language allows cruelty to take place. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, And, you know, when we we talk about dehumanizing people and, and kind of the little breadcrumbs that come before that I think you know uh, certain languages and certain things you can call people I mean uh, just, Donald Trump was a prime example of that and how he was talking about the wall and and you know calling Mexicans lazy and all these kind of things where, actually do you know what Mexicans are probably one of the hardest like, <laughs> like, I was listening to your podcast the other day and we were talking about you know Mexicans In America tend to have like one, two, three jobs and work really, really hard. So to say something like that about a nation or a people is quite horrible, but it's there for a purpose, isn't it? And, you know, what was happening at the time? There were people that were coming over the border. They were being put in cages and and, and being treated in inhumane ways. And that's why they were using that language, I feel.
2: And, And we had a very recent example of Joan Salter, a Holocaust survivor. She was a child when her family fled what was happening in Europe. And she stood up at a constituency meeting of Suella Braverman, Braverman rather, and challenged her on the language that she's using to describe asylum seekers and refugees, people coming across the channel in boats. She made that direct comparison to the language of the Holocaust. Um, That video on Twitter, I think, has been shared five million times, but still the language is used. Uh, Suella Braverman refused to apologise for the language. yeah, even after being challenged by a Holocaust
0: survivor of all people, I saw that. I saw that. It was very powerful stuff. I can't remember who shared that, but it was something that was on my radar because I'm a bit scared. I'm a bit scared about certain things that happen at the moment. And I feel like, I feel like there's only so much you can do, and there's only so much you can say in the comments and Facebook before I, I, I feel like I'm just speaking to a brick wall most of the time. Uh, and I don't want to be uh, known as the yeah, guy, you know, that's constantly like in the comments and, and making, I think somebody on a radio show in America uh, a few weeks ago called me uh, a leftist bigot, <laughs> I was like what does that mean, like um, um, I guess that means I stand up for the right things, I'm quite happy with that, but you know um, uh, and yeah it, this is this is something that keeps getting repeated time after time after time and not just in Europe, you know, in places like
2: Africa and Asia and in places around the world yeah. Brazil Brazil recently uh, saw a report only a few days ago of the Yanomami people in the Amazon who were being wiped out um, after the pol- policies of Bolsonaro, allowing miners and others into their territory, a territory the size of Portugal. And there are people, Yanomami people in hospitals who look like uh, Holocaust camp survivors, totally emaciated. They, they can't hunt, they can't fish, the rivers are polluted, the, the, and the wildlife has, has left the area, there are diseases there. Um, that their bodies aren't equipped to deal with.
0: In China as well, there's concentration camps in China at the moment. So, yeah, with the Uyghur. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's something that's happening again and again and again. And I've got to ask you the question: Are
2: humans inherently evil? Evil is a religious concept. There's no scientific definition of evil. You won't find a, a, a scientist or um, an anthrop- anthropologist or anyone else who can define evil. So are humans inherently evil? Scientifically, no. Um, uh, religiously, maybe, if you, if you uh, follow religious concepts, people have the potential to do evil things. All people have the potential to do evil things. I read a, a book recently, and this is another one I'd recommend. It's The Science of Hate by Matthew Williams. Now, Matthew Williams um, is a gay man who started off his university career studying journalism. That was where he saw himself going. One day, he stood outside a gay bar in London, and some strangers randomly picked him and attacked him. So he swapped from journalism to psychology. He wanted to understand why those people who didn't know him knew very little about him, apart from the fact he was stood outside a gay bar, and they choose to give him an almighty beating. And he looked at various things, and some of this science has been uh, disputed, but one is that if, in his case, his assailants were black, now he could have easily made the leap that all black people would be violent towards him. What he... Decided rightly was that it was those two people who happened to be black who'd attacked him, and he couldn't tarnish a whole group of people based on their skin color and based on the actions of a small group of people. He looked at our biological responses. Now, we've got the ancient um, reptilian brain and mammalian brain. The reptilian brain is best represented by the amygdala. Now, that's our, our gut response. If you hear a loud noise, you'll jump. If you know that the loud noise is going to happen, you're less likely to jump. If you know that the loud noise is a fireworks, first time you encounter them, you'll jump. Next time you encounter fireworks, you'll be excited. That's because another part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, is your moderator. So what we learn first to fear, if we realise actually it's not that dangerous, um, we can respond more sanely. If your prefrontal cortex isn't working properly, you can always see or perceive certain things as being dangerous so if you uh, through propaganda through life experiences through your associates led to believe that a certain group of people are dangerous and your prefrontal cortex through um, experience acquaintanceships familiarity with that group of people shows that actually no they're not dangerous your prefrontal cortex will moderate that response and you won't perceive them as dangerous so that's part of the science of hate within that Does that give us a potential for evil? If you haven't got that prefrontal cortex moderating through familiarity, through education, through learning, through contact and context, then potentially people can do harmful things. When we look at every genocide, the evil acts, if you want to call them evil, that occurred were through a continuing message that those being harmed weren't human beings. Rats, cancers, invasions, swarms, diseases, language that took away their humanity it makes it easy to harm people in an evil way if you want to use that word
0: yeah it's um again it's 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 a a behavior that's repeated and it it it, it does make me uh, it makes me really sad to be honest it really does because um i don't like to think that there's only a few people in the world that are, are compassionate about just fellow human beings you know I, I um, we released a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago uh, where I spoke to Amanda Jones and Shropshire supports refugees they made a peaceful stance in town I think that was a direct response to a, a, a situation that happened in a hotel a hotel in town I'm not going to mention it uh, and that's regarding refugees uh, from Syria um, and, and Ukraine um, it's a, it's something that I struggle with an awful lot so when you write, write this book and you talk about how um, this is this is something that's happened again and again and again and you illustrate that and you, I mean like this is a response to a, a law that was changed in Poland right? Yeah. Do you want to tell us about that, that so, law?
2: 2018 the Polish government introduced some legislation the Holocaust law it's been referred to which effectively criminalised anyone in Poland for saying writing or implying that Polish citizens were involved in the crimes of the Holocaust that was the the initial basis of the research for this book, and I didn't start the research off with a thesis of I'm going to prove that there was criminality in Poland. I was going to look at is there evidence of criminality? Is the evidence that the Polish law is actually justified and that Poles weren't involved in any of the crimes of the Holocaust? The evidence is, and this is supported by every Holocaust remembrance organisation and multiple historians and others, that some Poles, possibly a minority, but some, as in other countries that were occupied, were involved in the crimes of the Holocaust. Some of them were coerced into it. Some of them may have felt forced into it. Many of them, this probably minority of Poles, acted independently. They bribed. They... Um, ...threatened, they beat, they uh, extorted, they raped, they sexually harmed, they hunted, they killed, they denounced Jews. Some evidence suggests up to 200,000 Jews were killed by Poles alone. That's out of three million Jews in Poland who were killed, but 200,000 deaths can be attributed to Poles. So the law is wrong. Um, The law seeks to deny history. The Poles need to own that part of their history
0: yeah i love that at the end of the book you you mentioned that a lot of a lot of um a lot of props need to go for to germany for sort of owning what they did feeling the guilt and making the changes i feel like that was a really nice thing to say because when i was growing up it would be like you'd you'd hear lots of the um, sort of uh, slurs about germany and the war and (laughs) You know, Nazis being German, and, and you think, well, surely things have come a long way since then. And it's nice that you mention that in the end of the book.
2: And, and when we look at Germany and the countries that were occupied and the criminality that occurred then, it occurred then by different people in different times. So I don't hold Germany guilty, Germans today, guilty for the crimes of their ancestors any more than Poles, Ukrainians, Dutch, French, Hungarians, and others in Europe are guilty for the crimes of citizens of the past. But they have to own those Crimes, just as we have to own our part in the slave trade, or in you know the brutality that happened in continental Africa, or in South Asia, or in East Asia, um,
0: you know it happened there. On Northern Ireland, the paratroopers just yeah. landed there and started shooting people. Yeah. I mean, this is like I said, this is a behaviour that keeps repeating itself. Um, I remember a few years ago, I was I was I was a lot younger and I had an older gentleman. I wouldn't say who he is because that would be, be. But hey, we were having a conversation about Germany. And he's talking about, oh, Germany can't have this and Germany can't have that because it's in them. And I was like, what's in them? He's like, it's just in them. It's always going to be in them. And I was like, and I remember back then thinking, surely not. Surely it's in everybody. If it's in them, it's in the next country and the next country and the next country. I don't agree with that at all whatsoever.
2: No, absolutely. And if you look back at Germany in the 1920s and before, Germany was probably the most cultured and educated nation in Europe. Um, if it could happen there, it can happen anywhere. Yeah. If you look at the anti-Semitism in Germany, at the time, Jews made up less than 1% of the population of Germany, yet they be- became an easy target for for hate, for blame, for castigating, for associating you with know, the Treaty of Versailles, the loss in the First World War, the Great Depression, uh, the financial crisis, and everything else became the responsibility of the Jews. Less than 1% of the population uh, of the country, but... They became an easy target yeah. in this very cultured, educated nation.
0: Yeah, it's, it's sad. It really is sad. Um, now, there's a difference between um, sort of revisionism, which is what Poland is pretty much doing. They're saying, like, well, I don't know, it wasn't our responsibility, it was all to do with, it. and that's not true, obviously, because uh, there's lots of evidence to back that up, and um, uh, Holocaust denial they're two completely different Mm. things and I love that you you take a lot of time explaining what one is and what the other is yeah because uh, I am finding it very absurd and I'm perplexed at the fact the amount of people that are are coming out with holocaust denial and uh, I think you explained that it's uh, it's a lot of right wing uh, ignorance right
2: and and sometimes on the left wing as
0: well and I was meant to ask you what's the difference between the far right and the far left I mean which one's more dangerous
2: (laughs) Uh, if, if you look at um, terrorism arrests recently in this country, if, of the two, the far-rights are more dangerous, but both, both potentially can cause harm. Yeah. Uh, both far-left and far right seem to have hostility towards Israel. Uh, and, yeah, I'm not saying that Israel hasn't done some dreadful things, particularly with, uh, with the cause of Palestinians, but they both have that hostility towards Israel. Holocaust deniers tend, by and large, to be anti-Semitic. Yeah. um, They tend also to have hostility towards other minority um, groups. The difference between revisionism, as you mentioned, and Holocaust denial. Revisionism is an attempt to rewrite history in a convenient way. Holocaust denial is a denial that the events of the Holocaust occurred, or quite often an attempt to minimise it, or take away intent or pure blame, the likes of David Irving, who is now discredited as a historian. Um, sought to sink the good ship Auschwitz. If he could prove that Auschwitz was fake, that the gas chambers didn't exist, he felt that the whole, the whole case in favor of the Holocaust occurring would be gone. He failed miserably. He was labeled an, an anti-Semite by Deborah Lipstadt, a historian in the United States. He took her to court and lost the case and was absolutely eviscerated by the judge um, in awarding damages. That he is an anti Semite, that he has a very selective take on history. Um,
1: yeah.
0: And that was a very interesting thing. And I, when I was reading that, I was thinking, how can you, how can you deny, how can you deny something like this existed? It is one of the most documented wars in history, and even today, there's not there's things going on in Afghanistan and around the world. Um, there seems to be more footage of World War II, which is absolutely bizarre. And um, how, how is it possible? I mean, I watched and I, I spoke. I think I emailed you at like two o'clock in the morning when I'd watched it, the uh, the Nazi death camps documentary on Netflix, which broke my heart, absolutely broke my heart. I was in tears watching it, but I felt compelled to finish watching it because there's footage, raw footage of the, the pits and the, what was happening, and it was horrific to see. Why, why do I feel like I need to finish watching these things, though? I did speak to you about this. Why do I feel like I have to finish watching this thing, even though it's horrific?
2: It's, it's I think, a human need to understand history. Even the, the brutality of it. Even when I'm talking about that, I'm getting welled up thinking about it. Yeah. Okay.
0: That's interesting. Um, I've, got, I've lost my train of thought now.
2: And if, if just thinking on deniers, um, they're, they're conspiracy theorists. And all conspiracy theorists, or most conspiracy theorists, uh, very much function in a confirmation bias echo chamber. They only seek like minded people, they won't seek information that is referenced and sourced and. Will give a different take on their worldview. If if they believe the Holocaust is a hoax, they'll seek out online Holocaust hoax and find sources that back them up. They won't pick up academic books or survivor accounts yeah. or any of the mul- multiple uh, sources of, of information about the truth of the Holocaust. A lot of whataboutism is. is yeah, what? Yeah.
0: what about this and what about that? And what about the little random facts that designed, I think, to confuse people. Uh, So they can be
2: like, ah, you don't know. And it's just... just, What about the Soviets? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What about China? What about other countries? What about the British concentration camps in South Africa? It's not about those. The Holocaust is an event in history. I have no idea what that is. It sounded like a train going by, didn't it? (laughs) Something landing on the roof. (laughs)
0: Um, I I did thoroughly enjoy this book because you spent a lot of time talking about how... um, (laughs) this is going to sound like a really bad thing, Uh, how the countries we feel like are the the heroes, and and as innocent as we think we are, they're not. No. Especially when it comes to Britain and and, and the US.
2: Well, I I chose to research um, Britain and the US to balance it out, rather than just looking at some occupied countries, not all the countries that are occupied, looking at our attitudes towards what was happening in Europe, the plight of the Jews, and the plight of Jewish refugees, and what didn't surprise me so much, but saddened me, was how similar the language of hostility towards Jewish refugees was, particularly in the United States, but also here. Um, How similar it was to the language that we hear now towards refugees. In America, Europe's Jews are Europe's problem. Um, There was a a campaign by two representatives in, in, in the Senate to increase the quota of refugees and migrants allowed in the United States. The hostility towards that was shocking. Um, and you can see that today. You can yeah. see that today. There was a, an awareness in government here that if they increased the number of Jewish refugees coming here, there was a rising tide of anti Semitism in this country and that it would be met with hostility. We only took 10,000 Jewish children under the age of 17, they had to be unaccompanied. Most of those children never saw their adult relatives again. 10,000, that was it, during the whole 12-year period of the Nazi reign, and particularly after the Nazi race laws in 1935, when we knew the hostility to Jews was there after Kristallnacht the november program in 1938 when the violence against jews was being seen um and after the invasion of poland and when it was becoming apparent what was happening to jews in europe particularly after june 41 when the nazis moved eastwards when the holocaust truly began western powers were aware of that the information was coming out but still there was reticence to take uh, refugees i think all told we took about 70,000 refugees um, do you think like if,
0: if Chamberlain was uh, w- would just outed Hitler on a massive scale this is what Adolf Hitler was doing this you know because they knew what was going on do you think it would have changed things or would you think it would have made things worse would it have changed things I don't know because um, I think I, that would have been the best way to tackle it rather than going out and be like let's close the camps because it's very difficult to get into Germany Poland that that, that 41 certainly um, but if, so if uh, propaganda would probably would have been the best way to be like this is what they're doing they're monsters you know would it have changed his actions though No, um, probably it, it not. might have made uh, alerted um, people in, in, in occupied countries actually um, that it might have made hate a bit more fluent I guess is what I'm trying to say you know you may feel like propaganda, propaganda is a positive thing but it might actually anger people a bit more you know I don't know it's one of those things um, there's a lot of uh, right wing right wing aimed groups I don't want to mention any because I don't want any, any like turn up on my doorstep, but we've seen the demonstrations. We've seen that there's a fight in town and the and the, the, the behaviors towards certain groups uh, from another right wing group. And I want to bring up uh, Sir Oswald Mosley. I, I don't really want anyone to call him Sir, to be honest. Um, you mentioned in his book he was he was very much a right wing party builder. Um, and he was very anti-Semitic and he wanted people to follow him he created his own political party, party. and I wanted to ask you like, if that happened today say say the, the events of World War 2 are happening now with Facebook, with Instagram, with TikTok with all the people on the way they are today say there was somebody like uh, Sir Oswald Mosley, and there are definitely um, modern equivalents of him if that was to happen today well, what do you think would happen with, the, with society how do you think we'd react?
2: We've got different information sources and ways of acquiring that information. We don't don't have the big rallies that they had in 1920s, 30s, 40s, up up until the internet age. The rallies are online now. um, And they're they're echo chamber rallies. People are seeking out the rally rather than chancing upon it. Mosley was a chancer. He was an opportunist. He went from conservative to Labour to independent to ultimately forming the British Union of Fascists. He was very much influenced by uh, Mussolini, but also liked elements of Hitler's rhetoric and attitude. He was an anti-Semitic. He um, opposed British interventions in the Second World War. Um, He didn't actively resist. He encouraged his membership to take on jobs where they couldn't be uh, locked up for not following orders. They'd merely be dismissed or reprimanded. So they became um, air raid wardens and civil defense officers, firemen, other jobs where they could resist without uh, facing the disciplinary consequences of being in, in the military um, he, his following was fairly limited it was only a few thousand and they met great resistance wherever they convened they were battered in Glasgow there's the famous Battle of Cable Street where they tried to march into the Jewish area of London where trade unionists and others um, knocked boot holes out of them they, they got a dreadful shellacking um, and as the war started they were locked up well, certainly some of them were locked up and their influence went. Because they were limited to those who would attend in person, their their reach was limited. Um, Today, as we've seen with certain influencers and some of the far right in this country and elsewhere, the internet gives them access to a much wider audience. Um, We have an influencer currently locked up in, in Romania who I've never listened to any of his material, not to avoid it, I just happened not to have... It's weird that his name them. rhymes with the word hate, right? Yeah. But he, his <laughs> you know reaches a, a lot of young, easily influenced yeah. um, boys. Teachers are speaking out now about the attitudes they're encountering with school kids over the last year or so, uh, based on his influence. If his um, ability to reach a wide audience um, adopted a different tone and targeted particular racial or religious or... Minority groups, the harm could be immense. So,
0: and we've seen that we've seen that over the last few years with uh, Donald Trump, and, and sort of, I I feel like Donald Trump and his behaviour and, and the um, and the people that sort of supported him, they opened Pandora's box in a way. They can't be put back in now because he created a, a, almost a language that was seemed acceptable on, on social media. You can just be as cruel as you like now in the comments, and it's fine. And I think that, that was the Trump and that, that sort of, that was a turning point, I think, for people and how they sort of uh, respond to each other. Another thing as well from the box, sorry, to, I get get excited when I... I didn't realise Jersey and Guernsey was occupied. Yeah. I, I didn't realise there was actually British soil that was that was occupied yeah. by the Germans. And well, they're technically crown dependency, but for you know, yeah, all yeah.
2: intents and purposes, British, yes.
0: Yeah, and um, when you talk about the behaviours of the neighbours and how they betrayed their Jewish neighbours and, um, you know, handed them over and there was, it seems like, oh my god, it feels like you can make a really horrific, dark soap opera out of that. Do you know what I mean? It seems like, you could just imagine the the curtain twitches and the, the gossip and the how horrible it must have been to be in this small land with Nazis everywhere, changing the laws, you can't trust your neighbours, and in fact, they were handing over Nazis left, right and centre to be uh, sent away.
2: And so, uh, um government officials in Jersey actually used Nazi race laws to identify Jews, <laughs> uh, you know, based on parentage, grandparentage, marriage. Uh, it was Nazi race laws that were used. The islands were in a difficult position, and I, I do try to acknowledge this in the book. <laughs> they were islands. Um, yeah. The ability to resist in a small island... You ain't territory. going nowhere. You've you, you you got nowhere to run. You yeah. can't blow building up and then, you know, travel 200 miles away to escape capture. Yeah. You, you contain within the island, and the Nazis were brutal and they wouldn't use brutal means to catch people so the the ability to resist was limited there was resistance Um, there was also some collaboration channel lines are interesting in another way i've mentioned this in the book that of all the territories that were occupied by the nazis they're the only ones where no one was prosecuted after the war for collaboration churchill anticipated french style brutality against collaborators and it didn't happen no one was prosecuted
0: that's interesting. Were, were there any programs? Programs pog, in in uh, in the channel? I, I, no, no, no. Which, by the way, that I, I had to Google that word when I found it in the book, and I put it on YouTube. Bad thing to do. A, a program is is where it's uh, it's where the officials turn a blind eye, and may in fact, take part in some cases in the slaying of a particular type of people uh, publicly. Right? And, it,
2: it can be as extreme as as murder. It can just be damaging a community. The the pogroms of November 9th and 10th, 1938, sometimes called Kristallnacht. Um, That was destruction of Jewish businesses, properties and synagogues, and a lot of violence. Is that
0: the Night of Tears? Is that what it's called? No, it's called Kristallnacht. Uh, I I thought there was a nickname for that night. I I know the night you're on about. Um, So it's a bit like, I always imagine it now, like... um, uh the, the, the tiki torches and the ho- horses yeah. uh, you know that you see in movies in America when they turn up or a lynch a lynching it 's like a group lynching um, and that sounds like one of the most horrific things to, to, to be like rounded up into a town square and just been beaten to, uh, yeah it 's a terrible thing to think about um, what uh, what i I found shocking was i mean when we talk about the invasion of France and how quickly that took t- took part. That was a shock anyway. Mm. But the fact that the, the Vichy um, government very, very quickly changed their laws almost makes me feel like they had it already kind of in place and ready just to quickly switch. It and, almost
2: feels like that. Yeah. France, for those who aren't aware, the north of France was occupied by Germans. The south of France, uh, southern half of France, was a Vichy government. So based in the town of Vichy, uh, ruled by Marshal Patan. Um, and they, as you say, rapidly introduced their own anti-Jewish legislation um, yeah. and made life very unpleasant for Jews in their territory and helped with the transportation of Jews to Eastern Europe, to the camps in Nazi-occupied Poland and elsewhere.
0: Yeah, very sad. Very, very, I mean, imagine you're living in a country and within within a summer within a summer there's uh, dozens and dozens of law changes Um, there are thousands and thousands of people rounded up moved out of your community Uh, there are pogroms there are there's lots going on and it's all it's
2: imagine how shocking that would be I mentioned it in the book the Netherlands peaceful, law-abiding, civil society. Whenever I think of Holland, I think, hi, hello, you know. (laughs) It's estimated there were probably 140,000 Jews in the Netherlands at the start of the war. 107,000 of those were transported east, more than, proportionately more than anywhere. As they say, with efficiency. Of those, I think 104,000 died in the camps. Uh, And civil servants, the railways, government officials, the military, the police, all actively helped in that destruction of the Netherlands Jewish community.
0: Um, And I, I mentioned that, you know, we're talking about revisionism. And we talk about how how the Netherlands are perceived as as heroes or as the oppressed or you know uh, you know someone like that kind of withered, weathered the storm. But a natural fact, they were, they were they were perpetrators. They were they were kind of they were helping out with the, they, the great efficiency, supplying trains, train lines, and and the, the people to be sent away as well. It kind of reminds me, of, you know, we talk about today America and how they're sort of starting to change their laws, so especially when it comes to how women and what they can do with their bodies you are talking about the abortion laws and things that are now in Florida being changed in education and what should be taught and what shouldn't be and there's a very religious aspect going into education right now it, it's kind of an echo an echo there isn't it? there's some
2: similarities there the banning of book, certain books yeah you know, why ban a book Mein Kampf for years was banned in Germany it was only I think about five years ago it was made available in Germany and rightly so um, I remember many years ago talking to a colleague a psychologist colleague who relayed a conversation he'd had with someone else about Mein Kampf and um, the person he was talking to said it should be banned he said why he said it's an awful book he said have you read it And no how do you know uh, I've, yeah. I've read it it is an awful book it's badly written it's full of bile and hate and awful propaganda but to understand it you have to read it uh, I've I'd, I'd, I'd never read it
0: uh, maybe I should one day just to, just to see what this guy was banging on because he wrote it while he was in prison right mm he must have been very angry while he was in prison (laughs) I was sitting there all these plans that he had and he was just uh, he put all that hate into a book can you imagine Uh, I'll have to give it a read Um, what can be done to sort of um, help because like when it comes to changes made to education in the curriculum that comes from a very high level in America that'll come from the Senate here it'll come from Parliament how do you change something like that and how do you voice it in a way that you don't sound eccentric do you know what I mean
2: some point. We're lucky in this, this country that <clears throat> Holocaust education is part of the curriculum. It should be taught at uh, the earliest in key, key stage three. Uh, so it's there on the curriculum. Where we have uh, a slight problem with Holocaust education here is there's no consistency in what is actually taught. It's up to whoever is assigned to teach it to decide yeah, how they pursue yeah. the subject. But the, there are some very good Holocaust educators within our school system. I happen to be... Um, the school on the outskirts of Shrewsbury only recently and talking to one of the staff there, every year they take children to Auschwitz as part of Holocaust education. Wow. So it can be done. Um, but for me, Holocaust education needs to be done in a way that puts it in the context of the world we live in today. Um, you need to understand the past with its relevance to the present. And that's the importance, and that's what we
0: were talking about earlier with Germany sort of accepting their guilt and the, because they, they realise what they've done wrong, and now they've made these huge changes. If you're Holland, and you go, no, we didn't do any of this, or you're Poland, and you're saying, no, you, you can't call them Polish execution camp. Like, you've got to own
2: that. You've got to accept it to be able to move on. And, and it, you know, in, in the Netherlands, it's only in recent years that Holocaust education books have been available in schools. That, that, was, that was absurd to me. Yep. I was Except like, what? World War history for the, the Netherlands was about resistance. Uh, not about uh, the, the murder of 104,000 Jews.
0: And uh, for, for the listeners at home, by the way, you need you need to read this book, please. I, I mean, it, I thought this was going to be a difficult read, and you know, in parts it is. You know, there was ta- there were parts that I found really sad, but I haven't seen the documentaries. I have. Uh, it was kind of it was kind of light-hearted, like light-hearted in comparison. But when you talk about society today and how it sort of echoes, it's very important to give it a read. Um, Again, I've lost my foot, my train of thought. Um, but when we talk about um, uh, Holland and why they were treated differently, is because they have German heritage, right? They're kind of treated as almost like brothers of the Germans. Mm. They're kind of almost Aryan, so they weren't. Um, as uh, oppressed as other countries. So they, it was kind of almost peaceful. They kind of, kind of like they got along with each other. And uh, do you reckon that was why they were so efficient in handing over of the Jews?
2: It, they weren't occupied in the same way that Poland and Ukraine and other yeah. countries were. There was an element with the Germans that they saw them as brethren. Yeah. Um, and they knew that introducing uh, ghettos as they had in occupied Poland wouldn't be as well received. Yeah, in the Netherlands. You won't be brethren anymore. <laughs> no. um, but they did, they, they contained Jews within community areas, not ghettos. Uh, yeah. They registered Jews. They made sure that their whereabouts was known, so that come the time of transportation, they could be easily moved to camps like Westerbork, ready to be transported east. Um, but you're right, it wasn't occupied in the same way. There were German forces there. Um, but not in the numbers uh, elsewhere in Europe.
0: I mean, when you feel, when you when you look at movies, The the, the Pianist is a great example, like um, the aggression in, in how they liquidated areas in Poland um, is not echoed in, in, I watched My Friend Anne Frank, and it was like, there'd be like a policeman knocking at the door, hello, hello, come on out, 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 and they, they would move them out, but they wouldn't like smash the door open and start shooting people when in that film I I guess they probably did it in some circumstances but um you don't get that picture of 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 aggression that you would do in like Poland Mm -hmm. and and Ukraine um uh so I was gonna uh, say a bit about Ukraine because um it's only watching documentaries I realised sort of how the holocaust moved across eastern to western Europe um and how it started in Ukraine and how it started which is brutal um but what I've got to say is about Ukrainian people, these, these guys have been through so, so, so much uh, as a nation, and you can almost understand why they'd be so angry, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, you can look at you know, Ukraine, Poland, uh, the Baltic states, um, where there's what's referred to as double occupation. So Poland, as an example, 1st of September 1939, the Nazis took over the western half of Poland. 17th of September 1939, by agreement... The Soviets took over the east. June 1941, Operation Barbarossa, the Nazis moved east. The whole, the Russian, Soviets are removed from the east of Poland. That area is then occupied uh, by the Nazis. In Ukraine, which had been a Soviet territory, they're occupied by the Nazis. Ukraine, they hated the Soviets. Less than 10 years before, there'd been an awful famine in Ukraine called the Holodomor. Probably four million people starved to death. Grain, Other foodstuffs, livestock was transported into the wider Soviet Union to feed industry and to feed the uh, the military. Probably four million people starved in Ukraine. The Nazis were aware of the whole more. So they bombarded Ukraine with propaganda associating Soviet Bolshevism with Judaism, Judeo-Bolshevism. They made, they conflated Jews and Soviets as one and the same. It made it easy for them to get support. So the enemy's still here. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. It happened in Poland. It happened in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Uh, that association of Jews and Soviet Bolshevism led to enthusiastic collaborators. <clears throat> Going back to a point made earlier, the criticism of those nations then is a criticism of the c- citizens of then, not of the nation's now and the citizens are now. What's happening in Ukraine now is awful, it's brutal. There are elements of ethnic cleansing going on in the East. People being transported out by the bus and train load into into wide Russia. They may never see their homes again. The the Russians are ethnically cleansing parts of Ukraine trying to make it Russian in whatever way they can uh, rather than acknowledging the the nationhood and stateship of, of the Ukrainian people.
0: I remember listening to the radio and the news and they were talking about um, how there was 500 people found in a death pit in Ukraine and it, it rocked my world. Mm. Absolutely rocked my world. I was like, there's no way at the time in 2022 um, that they're still doing this. I was like, this is horrific. This is her- was, I was driving. I, was, I almost had to pull over. I was like, "What is? what am I hearing right now? There's 500 people found in a death pit in, in, in Ukraine. Like, it, that just, um, it scares me.
2: And how the Russians are doing the reverse of what the Nazis did in 1941. The Russians are accusing the Ukrainians of being Nazis, of being fascists, of being criminal. Um, the opposite to the Nazis where they are accusing Jews of being part of Bolshevism uh, and this awful uh, uh, force that occupied the UK- Ukrainian territory. The Russians are behaving more like Nazis than any other nation in Europe in recent years. Yeah, and so there's a, a phrase called uh, "accusation in the mirror." Accuse your enemy of that, which you're, you're doing. Um, so the Russians accuse the Ukrainians of behaving like Nazis. Wilks behaving like Nazis themselves.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned in the book that there's a, there's a, there is a huge anti-Semitic um, uh, way of being in places like Poland, and Ukraine, and and in sort of in, in that Eastern Bloc. But there is here as well, and in America, and everywhere. So if you're going to point a finger at a Ukraine and go, you're anti-Semitic, uh, this is how you feel, then you've got to point your finger at everywhere else that feels that same way, because yeah. uh, we've seen a, a very huge right-wing movement here and in the US, and, uh, you know, it's, it's that scary. And so you, you can't even use that as a defence no, for anything. And,
2: and, like. and with Ukraine, it's, it needs to be pointed out, their president is Jewish. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and... Uh, there's so much we can talk about. I mentioned here the word pogrom is is alien to me, uh, or, 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 or was is now the case, should I say. Um, I've got to ask you, because Poland have made a, a laws that you can't say Polish death camps anymore, yes. and you can't associate Poland with the uh, extermination of the Jews in certain regards. With your book, um, you, you you very much you, you show evidence suggest that actually that there was there wasn't just polish um society involved of it there was hungarian there was it, um there was british there was there was so many people that were involved the french um do you feel like there may be some repercussions from your book from poland
2: no I mean, have you had I've, any i've I've, pointed, no, I've not had any um problems with poland and i've got polish friends yeah. who read it and understand my take on the topic the phrase Polish death camps is absolutely wrong. Yeah, of and, course. and I would agree absolutely. with that. Yeah. They, they were Nazi German death camps in Nazi German occupied Poland. Yes. The, the nationhood of Poland ceased to exist during that, that period 1939 yeah. 45. Part of it was annexed as German territory. Part of it was under the general government. Part of it was under Soviet rule. When the Nazis moved east, that became part of the general government. The the government of Poland ceased to exist, the civic offices ceased to exist independently, the police ceased to exist independently, so Poland as a society um, wasn't the pre-war Polish society, it wasn't the post-war Polish society, so the Polish government to right say there were no Polish death camps, there were death camps on... Yeah, it's a a lazy slur. Yeah, death camps on occupied Polish territory, run by Nazis, for Nazis, um... Where they are wrong to say is that no Poles were involved in any of the crimes of the Holocaust. Some were probably a minority, but some were, the majority of Poles were possibly indifferent to the fate of the Jews. Um, Not necessarily hostile, but indifferent. I have a a number of Holocaust survivor friends. One of them has told me many times about being in the ghetto in Lublin. Where occasionally she would have to get out of the ghetto to try and barter, to try and trade, to get some food so to that she, her mother, her father and brother could survive. She always felt that in Lublin she was in more danger from Poles than she was from Nazis. The greatest danger to her when she was out of the ghetto wasn't Nazis in uniform, it was Polish citizens out of uniform.
0: Yeah. And again, when it comes to dehumanising and the laws are put in place by the Nazis, you could do anything you wanted to a Jew back then yeah, and that's horrific to, to think of um, and you know the, re- the reason why I, I, I bring up the, you know that is because there are certain things happening in, in the UK at the moment when it comes to uh, wars that are happening around uh, the world and people that are fleeing them uh, because they need to be safe and come to our country some can't come legally so some are having to find illegal routes into the UK to try and survive get results, try and survive. Um, and you know this movement with with poland sort of sort of making it a law so you can't say this thing and then the certain languages being used here it feels like people sort of trying to turn a blind eye to to the the empathy that can be offered to people that need to be
2: saved you can counterbalance it with poland Look, a number of Ukrainians who are currently being cared for wonderfully in Poland. Poland opened its borders without and that's without question. I was going to counterbalance yeah. that. Poland
0: have been amazing. They've yeah. been by far um, the best support for the, the Ukraine. vast majority
2: of the Ukrainian yeah. refugees are being cared for in, in Poland. Yeah, some are being cared for elsewhere around the world. Some have quite rightly been received here and offered sanctuary and and host families and everything else. Absolutely, the way it should be. They were provided with a legal route. Um, yeah. Some Syrians, some Iraqis, some Afghans have been provided with legal routes. Many haven't. The vast majority of people who are trying to come to this country also in some recent research over the last few years have been from Eritrea, from Iran, from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from war zones. Um, they're not provided legal routes. The only way they can get in is via boat and then to claim asylum. Those who come here are a minority of refugees moving around the world we don't take the majority of the world's refugees if you listen to some of the right-wing press some right-wing politicians you will believe that uh, we're being swamped by the majority of the world's refugees some come here they'll come here because they've got cultural connections linked to the old british empire they'll come here because they speak english as a first or second language they'll come here because they've got family connections um there are multiple reasons why people will choose this country as opposed to France or Germany or Italy, yeah. uh, the other countries in continental Europe, that take far more than we do. Um, if they come here proportionate to a population of 67 million, it's a tiny number. They could be accommodated. Um, China, not to be political, we're currently down on our workforce in hospitality and in agriculture and elsewhere. You've got people who are young, healthy, fit, who won't be using uh, the health service because they're not going to need it who can work yeah. who can contribute to the economy if they work they earn money if they earn money they pay taxes if they earn money they spend money
0: and i feel like if you like see what what poland is doing now for ukraine <clears throat> so now people are thinking poland in a in a good light Oh, Poland! are amazing, and rightly so. They're doing a great job. Whereas, if the UK were a bit more open and a bit more welcoming, and offered the support like the deep of Ukraine, what happened when the Ukraine war started? There was there was blue and yellow flags everywhere. Everybody was in support of Ukraine. Nobody did that for in Libya. Nobody did that in Syria. Nobody did that in Iraq, or you know. And it's 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 a very it's a huge shame. I feel like if we offered a bit more, a bit more empathy, and a bit more compassion, and a bit more welcoming other countries around the world might see us in a better light
2: and if, if you look at syria the same forces that destroyed cities in syria are destroying cities in ukraine it wasn't just Assad; it was the russian forces that assisted him yeah, okay. using the same tactics yeah. of you know just absolute destruction yeah
0: um how what was the uh, the feedback been about the book have you had lots of
2: po- the feedback i've had has been very positive um which is what i want it's it's there to educate um. right, you put a
0: lot of, I remember speaking to you when you first started started putting the pieces together for this book you put a lot of work into this I know this is your almost like your piece de resistance this is your this is your your piece of art and I think it deserves that that because that I think it's fantastic and you can see the work you put into it as well
2: uh, yeah thank you and um... I've tried to be as balanced as possible with it I've not written the book with an agenda
0: yeah and I think that's worth mentioning you haven't gone oh Poland's this and France's this. you've offered like both sides of the fence if you like I've
2: gone where the research has taken me um, and then tried to put the research into words and language that is easily comprehended by, by readers and can help them understand that period of history in a better light and also more importantly to understand the relevance of that period of history to the world we live in today yeah very important
0: and I got a quote from the book do you mind if I read a quote Uh, I I think it's really good Uh, it says uh, it is reasonable a reasonable observation to suggest that the anti-semitic writings and speeches of senior Nazis could transfer easily to contemporary language rhetoric attitudes and intolerance merely by changing the word Jew to Muslim refugee asylum sinker immigrant or foreigner I thought that was very telling after what I'd just read And that's what we just talked about.
2: And there's a truth in that. I wouldn't have written it otherwise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got to say, because um, the, 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 fir- the
0: first huge, the main, main uh, body of the book is from research and keynotes and things that you've, you've, you've taken. Um, what was easier to write? Because I know you've, you've put years and years and years of work of research and into putting this book together. What was easier to write? The thing you had the, the, the research for, or the bits at the end where you put your thoughts and feelings onto into paper?
2: My own thoughts and feelings are the results of the research. The research, um, anyone who's done any form of academic research will know that you get a eureka moment where you plough your way through archives and documents and books and articles and then suddenly, bingo, I understand this subject, it makes sense. Then you can put it into writing in a way that can be comprehended the bits at the end with the conclusion and the epilogue are the result of that research. So the research ultimately takes me to that epilogue. I find it interesting in this where we say history teaches us and is relevant today. This book was submitted for publication at the beginning of 2021. It predicts Trump, it comments on Brexit, it comments on Putin and the desire of Russia to gain further influence and possibly meddle in the uh, domestic affairs of other d- uh, democracies, it was all predictable. 2021, the spent for publication. You could see the the, the signs. Yeah, That's but interesting. For me, the way I read it, Putin's actions in uh, Ukraine were predictable.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, when we look back over the last few years, so much has changed. And it feels it almost feels like there's not there's not an awful lot we can do about it, you know, as, as a society. What can we do about it? I mean, we've got great people like you, writing books and sharing the facts um but we've also got we've got a very loud minority um that are, very, that are very loud the majority of people i feel like do feel a certain empathy or sympathy for um for uh refugees um but they're silent about it they're not making enough noise and there's also um there are a lot of people making noise but not a, do you know what I mean? They almost seem eccentric. It seems eccentric for me to be standing there with shop, uh, shops and supports, refugees, doing my thing, we need to do this thing. It just, it seems like a, a very, it's an uncomfortable dance. I think that's the best way to describe it.
2: We, we can all do that a bit individually. We can all challenge um, hate speech and hateful attitudes or attitudes that um, feel a bit dubious. We can have that conversation with people. If we see racist graffiti, we can report it. If we see or witness um, hostility towards others that feels like a hate crime. We can report it. hate crime or hate as an element of crime is in the eye of the beholder. If I perceive you as being a victim of hate crime due to your gender, sexuality, skin color, or faith or anything else, it will be dealt with as a hate crime. If you perceive something being done or said to me as a hate crime, it will. Be- treated as a hate crime yeah. so we can all do our bit we can speak out i won't name the premises because it would narrow it down to people but i remember a few years ago in my old uh, role um, being up near the shire hall and two members of staff this was at the time when they just opened uh, the muslim prayer center in the old registrar's office two members of staff coming to me in a glib way about they're going to put a loud hailer at the top of the lord hill column i knew what they meant I said, what do you mean was, well, you know, a loud hailer up there. Um, why? Well, you know what I mean. No, 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 tell me. Um, and I could see them getting uncomfortable. I said, I know what you're hinting at here. Can I ask, if that was a Church of England church being opened, would be, you would be suggesting they're going to be putting bells on top of Lord Hills Column? And you could see their discomfort. Um, they realised crossed the line. they picked the wrong person. Yeah. So I wasn't being hostile. Of all people to say that to. I wasn't being rude. I wasn't being aggressive. I was just getting them to think about what they were saying yeah. and how they were casually dismissing members of our community because the people who attend that prayer, prayer centre are members of our community. They're slopians, they're Shrewsbury people.
0: I feel like we've got a, a responsibility and I feel like a desperate responsibility when it comes to the the younger people of our, our community. Um, it seems like, I feel like social media is definitely speeding up a, a, a sort of, an, an ignorance, I'd say, more than a hate towards, But I mean, I was, um, I was watching a video of a, of a shaman girl, she was uh, pressing her nose against a tree and sort of breathing and being one with the tree. It's a part of her religion. That's what she does. And um, the the comments were just horrific. You know, they've seen something culturally different uh, to what they're used to, and they were just like, so, so inappropriate." The comments and the hate and the and you know, you almost feel like if you were like, "Why you you see something?" You know, if you if you if I was to stand up to someone in those comments you get slated, you get destroyed by these people, with the, the reactions and the com- comments of hate on you because you're standing up for them. It feels like there's a, there's a war, <laughs> almost like a war going on. And I feel like the only way to, to combat that is with
2: education. Yeah. And there's an anonymity on social media. Yeah, of and course. And you get trolls who troll just for the heck of it. Yeah, it. yeah, I've seen it a lot. They, yeah. they love to be as offensive as possible and see what they can get away with. They wouldn't probably do that in person. They probably wouldn't do it face-to-face. Um, But yeah, education is key, and younger people are the ones that we really need to be targeting. If you talk to any Holocaust survivor who's involved in education, and a good many of them are, they prefer talking to younger audiences. Younger audiences listen and want to learn. Older audiences, a lot of them will have the attitude, "I I know it all already. So those younger audiences are the ones we need to be reaching. We need Holocaust education to be taught in context about the world, today as I mentioned before
0: yeah I was speaking to a, a, a history teacher gosh it was last year it was at the Battle of Shrewsbury and uh, we did something at the uh, at St Mary's as well and he mentioned that he's a, he's a history teacher in school and he there were so many children teenage children in secondary school that did not know what World War II was <laughs> really? really yeah and he was hor- horrified you know as a history teacher now he's got his work to do you know what I mean um so, yeah, that's a
2: scary thought, isn't it? And I've met adults who've never heard of the Holocaust. Yeah. People in their 20s and 30s, which shocks me. Yeah. Um, they should have heard of the Holocaust, of Rwanda, Rwanda Cambodia, Bosnia, Darfur. Yeah. Um, Darfur, there's a genocide still going on. It's not stopped. doesn't make it into the news.
0: And I feel like, I feel like you know, with uh, the whole revisionism, the ignorance, it's kind of like well let's just like not get involved because then we'll have to get involved do you know what I mean let's not just yeah. let's, let's just not talk about it let's sweep it under the rug and a lot of that's happened over, over the decades I imagine yeah.
2: you know um, how was it writing this book did you enjoy it was it hard was it difficult it was hard work um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it I'm, I'm in my element doing the research and writing and trying to put something together in a way that will help other people access history and a part of history that is important to me um, so I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, uh, was it painful at times? Have of course, of course. Um, some of the brutality that's uh, referred to or described in there is, is awful. That's a brutality against our fellow human beings being done by their fellow human beings. Yeah. Um, so that bit was hard, uh, but making a product can understand that that part of history no, that's the reward
0: what's your relationship
2: like with the jewish community we, Did, we have a tiny jewish community in shropshire yeah um, uh, i know some of them i know um, jews elsewhere who um either survived the holocaust or are descendants of holocaust survivors and my relationship with them is, is wonderful
0: i was going to say it must be it must be nice for them to realise they've got a champion in you do you know what I mean that's why I ask um, you know if, if this was to be sold on the, on the streets of Israel would it go down well do you know what I mean like that's why I ask because I feel like you're, stand, you're, you're one of the very few standing up for the minorities that have been oppressed over the years and it's nice to see that you know so oh, thank if, you that's why I ask um, I, I wrote a quote I've never done a quote for a book before you know when you, you, you write a, a thing but I've, re- I've written a quote I don't know if you, if, if you agree with me listeners if you've read the book but I'll see what Simon thinks I've wrote <laughs> I feel bad I feel weird writing this um, but a compelling argument against revisionism and a rightful damning of Holocaust denial scores of undeniable evidence bound together beautifully followed by a very telling conclusion and a stark warning of an epilogue this book is a must read thank you I'll send that to you yeah I'll take that <laughs> yeah you like that um, I love chatting to you Simon likewise but, um, it's um, it's nice to have you as a friend a friend. Uh, for the biscuit because um we always whenever we see each other in town we all stop and have a really good chat and 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 you're you're a person i i look up to you do good things and it's nice to see that so you know, thank you for being new
2: and and thank you for all you're doing with the biscuits and promoting our <laughs> town
0: no i love i love doing what i do it's uh, it's getting to a point now where i'm kind of like i need to oh, oh i'd like to do this for a living do you know what I mean? And it's, I need to find a way to make that happen, so, you know, it's fun. Um, guys, I want to remind you, the book is called Remembering the Holocaust and the Impact on Societies Today, written by Simon Bell. Uh, can you get this on Amazon and good shops around here?
2: Um, any good shop will order it for you. They don't stock it on the shelves, but Amazon, Pen and Sword, uh, Waterstones Online, Google Online, you can get it as a hard copy book or Kindle ebook. book
0: Yeah. Um, guys, order the book. Um, I know Simon quite well. So if you want it signed, I'm pretty sure I can get Simon to sign it for you. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but, but please read the book. I'm sure you'll find a lot of information in it. It's, it's weird how... Don't you think it's weird? Like Later on in life, my 30s, I've become obsessed with World War II. When I was a kid, I was kind of like, yeah, that's really interesting. But now I'm kind of like... I find myself borrowing down the rabbit hole i feel like i've watched one thing and i've got to watch another thing and another thing and i think do you think that happens to everybody <laughs> do you feel like there's a certain stage in life where people are just kind of like
2: uh, drawn to it i don't know it's weird I don't know, I don't know i would say if there are any educators listening who want me to contribute to holocaust education in schools if you know one two-hour session i'm happy to do that i would work very much with them and no material would be used <laughs> that didn't meet their approval if any others not educators want me to speak at events just let me know they can contact me on facebook at Simon bell author on facebook or via you. i
0: uh, I, dro- I dropped i uh, dropped t- timmy's eight and i was like do you know what the holocaust is because i had this book i was just finishing it off a couple of days ago uh, and he was like no i was like okay i didn't want to push it because I, d- I don't know what what age is appropriate to start talking about this in particular
2: i think holocaust um educational trust recommend around about 13
0: yeah because it's quite dark isn't it It's isn't important to do but i guess like if i started telling this to timmy now he'd be horrified probably mm. have nightmares but um but yeah uh, educators please get in touch if you want simon to come and look at the school thank you for chatting to me thank you uh thank you guys for for listening um and um i've had a great time chatting to simon as well this has been really good thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you guys next time peace out